Well, today is Palm Sunday, so we're continuing our Easter series as we begin to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. So last week we were looking at his arrival into Jerusalem and his identity and looking at Mary's worship of Jesus during his last week. Today we're going to look at the crucifixion of Jesus and why it matters. And this is going to kind of sound weird, but when I think about why the crucifixion of Jesus matters, it makes me think of garage sales. Now, I'm actually not a fan of garage sales because like you have to wake up really early on a Saturday morning and go look through old people or through people's old stuff that they're throwing away. And that's not appealing. There is one exception. I'm a really big fan of garage sales in Plano. When I was a seminary student in Dallas, my wife and I were married, we would go to garage sales in Plano. We would wake up crazy early in the morning, like 4 a.m., and drive north because those people are not messing around. They would throw away stuff that's better than the stuff I buy new. I still have some of their furniture in my house today. It's so nice. And what was so appealing about going to garage sales in Plano is that you would get your hopes up that you're going to find a treasure among stuff that people are throwing away. That's always the hope of a garage sale. I read about a a family back in 2007 up in New York City who went to a garage sale and bought a small white ceramic vase or bowl for $3. But it looked kind of interesting to them, so they got it appraised. It turned out to be a thousand-year-old Chinese vase of which there were only two in existence, so they auctioned it off for $2.2 million. (laughs) It's kind of everyone's greatest hope. $3 for something that's worth $2.2 million. Now, here's a connection to Jesus' crucifixion. (laughs) just like that ceramic bowl most of the world assumes that jesus's death is not that significant that it's not that important and yet we know better there is a treasure to be found in the midst of something that the world cares a little about if you ask most people in this world what is the meaning of jesus's death well they're gonna maybe say jesus who still a whole lot of people on this planet who don't know anything about jesus Hundreds of millions of people who've never heard his name. So for some people, they don't even know about it. For a lot of other people, they, they know about it, but they don't believe in it. They think that Jesus is just a myth, just a, a superstition. So his death is completely meaningless to them. For others, especially here in America, they, they maybe believe that a guy named Jesus actually lived a couple thousand years ago and he died on a cross because maybe they heard that growing up, heard that at church a few times that they went. So they believe factually that maybe it happened, but it has no actual meaning to their day-to-day lives. It doesn't change how they live. It doesn't have any relevance to how they try to make it through life. To most of the world that we live in, Jesus' death is insignificant. We obviously disagree. And you can tell simply by looking at our stage. That cross is not there as furniture, as, as decoration. It's there because we literally believe that the cross is the center of our religion. That it is the most important thing that we celebrate. We are, we are transfixed on this object because of what it represents. This is what all of our faith hangs upon. This sacrificial act of Jesus 2,000 years ago. We believe that it's so important that not only do we put it up on our walls, we hang them around our necks, we wake up early on Sunday morning to gather together and sing about it, we send missionaries all over the world to tell people about it to us, The death of Jesus on the cross is priceless. It is the most important thing that ever happened. And and so the question for us is why? Why do we believe that this thing is so important? 
Why do we believe that the death of Jesus on the cross is priceless? So I'm going to walk you through that question this morning. Maybe that's going to be the first time for you. You've never really thought through why the death of Jesus matters. I want to introduce you to that material. For others of you, you've known that it matters for most of your life. What I'm going to try to do today is give you such clarity about why the death of Jesus matters that it's easy for you to go tell others. Ultimately, that's the goal here, that you would so clearly understand why Jesus' death matters, that you would feel equipped and inspired to share it with someone this week. Okay, because this is your week. We talked about that last week. This is like the only week of the year where you get to talk about the death of Jesus and it's not weird because it's Easter. So you have that opportunity. I want to equip you so you can help people understand why this matters. So why does the death of Jesus matter? Well, the answer begins with a problem. So turn to the book of Romans. We're going to look at a lot of passages in a lot of different spots in the New Testament today, but we're going to focus most of our time in Romans. So that's where I'm going to have you stay. I'll put the rest of the verses up on the screen, but we're going to look at Romans and we're going to start in chapter three. So the reason Jesus died on the cross, it begins with a problem. Romans 3 reveals that humanity has a serious problem far greater than disease or racism or warfare. It's a problem that the Bible calls sin. And I'm going to read a verse that many of you have heard before. That's going to be true of a lot of the verses we look at this morning. I'm going to try to unpack them for you, though, so you really understand what they mean. So Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul's point in this verse by saying all have sinned. He wants us to understand all people are sinners whether they realize it or not. All people are sinners whether they believe that about themselves or not. Now, what is sin? Now, the technical definition of sin is to fall short of God's standard of righteousness. That sounds really academic, though. That's kind of hard for people to wrap their minds around. So I want to make it a little simpler for you. How do you explain the concept of sin? Well, You start with the fact that God is loving. God loves people so much that he wants them to thrive in this life. He wants to take care of us. And so he revealed to us in his scriptures exactly what thoughts and attitudes and words and actions lead to thriving. That that help us to get the best out of life and help others get the best out of life. That's what God's word is. It, It shows us how to enjoy our best life and help others enjoy their best life too. So sin is whenever we choose not to do the things God has told us that are most loving to ourselves and to others. Sin is when we say no to these instructions God has given us for how we help ourselves and others enjoy the best out of life. Sin is any thought, any word, any action that is selfish, that is greedy, that is prideful, that is lustful, that is harmful to other people. And by that definition of sin, I think any honest person is going to admit, yeah, I'm a sinner. It's obvious. I think everybody who's honest with themselves can, can admit, yes, they have sinned. They have thought or said or done something that was prideful or selfish or arrogant or hateful that has hurt themselves or someone else. Okay, so everyone can agree we have sinned. Not everyone agrees on why that matters. But here's what the Bible says. Turn one chapter back to Romans chapter 1, actually. A couple chapters back. Romans 1, 18. 
Why does this problem matter? Well, because the penalty of sin is wrath. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's a mouthful. What Paul is saying is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all sin, against all ungodliness. But what is the wrath of God? Well, wrath is, is a, a very churchy sounding word. It just means punishment. Just or righteous punishment of evil. The, the penalty of all sin is wrath. It is God simply giving sin what sin deserves, which is punishment, which, which is justice from heaven. And, and the key to notice in that verse is that punishment is deserved by all sin, not just the really bad sins. We humans, we tend to rank sin. We choose to think of really bad sins as things like murder. And then something like running a red light, well, that's not a really big sin. That's not really a big deal. But that's not how sin works. That's not how justice works. All sin is sin in the eyes of God. Now, different sins will have different earthly consequences. The earthly consequence of murder is not the same as the earthly consequence of running a red light. But all sin makes you guilty. Any sin that you commit will make you guilty before God and therefore worthy of God's punishment. And here's the the biggest part of the problem. So, so far, we've got a pretty bad problem. Here's the worst part of all. There's nothing we can do to escape that wrath. There is absolutely nothing that we human beings can do to escape the punishment that we deserve from God. Now, that's not what most people expect, right? Most people, especially here in the Western world, they assume that if you do enough good deeds, you can cancel out your bad deeds, Okay, so do enough good and it will outweigh the bad and God will let you in. That sounds great, but that's not how it works. That's not how it works for God. That's not how it works in in human courts even. Look at James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. Even if you do good deeds your entire life and obey God your entire life and yet commit one sin, you are therefore guilty. You are a lawbreaker who deserves punishment. And before you say, well, that's unfair, realize the same thing is at play in human courts. Right? So let's think. What if you lived an incredibly good life? Man, you did so many good deeds. You gave away all your money to the poor. You worked in soup kitchens. You were nice to your neighbor. Such a good person. Until one night you had a moment of weakness and you drank too much. And then you drove and you got in an accident and you killed somebody. Now you stand before the judge. Did your lifetime of good deeds annul the fact that you committed DUI and manslaughter? You know the answer. No. You are still guilty. Whether in a human court or God's court, you break a law, you are guilty. Therefore, it doesn't matter how many good deeds you do, it cannot remove the fact that before God you're guilty and deserve punishment. And so that leads Paul to a very sad conclusion in Romans chapter 3. Turn back to chapter 3. First part of verse 20. I promise you guys, the news gets better here in a little bit. We've got to start with the bad news. Chapter 3, verse 20, just the first half of the verse. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Paul's saying, no matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how much you obey God, you will never make yourself righteous in the sight of God unless you are what? Perfect. 
utterly perfect, never sin, never break any of God's rules. That's the only way to earn your way out of God's wrath. And none of us are going to get that. All of us are going to fall short of that. That's Romans 3.23. We all break at least one rule in the course of our lifetime. And so that makes us guilty. And God is righteous. And so as a righteous judge, he must punish sin. He cannot overlook it. He must punish sin, which means he must punish us. That's the problem that we could not fix. And that's the first and most important reason Jesus came to die on the cross. First and most important reason why the crucifixion of Jesus matters is because it fixed our sin problem. This was the one and only way to fix the problem of sin. Every other religion out there that says they have a way for you to get out of sin, they are all wrong. This is the one and only way. Let me explain to you how the death of Jesus on the cross delivers you from sin. I'm going to walk you through three words. They're kind of big words. They're challenging words. They're all biblical words, but they're all foundational words. If you want to understand how Jesus' death on the cross fixed your sin problem, you need to know these three words. So let's start with the hardest of them all, propitiation. Probably not one you use in your everyday language, although maybe you should because it's a pretty awesome word, really great word. Let me introduce you to this word, 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The verse begins in a very good place. Love. God loving us. God loved us so much he sent his son. But there's a problem. God loves us, but we sinned. And God is righteous. He, He is just. He must punish sin. And so what is God's solution? His son propitiated our sin. What does that mean? Well, propitiation is to absorb the wrath of a God. Jesus absorbed the punishment you deserved. Okay, let let me illustrate this to you. How does this work? Well, um, there's a story of a leader of the Cossack people in Asia. He passed a law that anyone who was caught stealing food would get 30 lashes on their bare back. Well, sometime later, a thief was caught, and and the thief's cloak was removed, and it was his own mom. Okay, well, here's the problem. The judge loves his mom, but the judge is also just. So he's trapped. What's he going to do? He can't just set the law aside because he cares about the law. But this is his mom. He doesn't want his mom to get 30 lashes on the back. So what does he do? He takes off his robe. And he wraps his arms around his mom and he says, beat her. And they do beat him. He absorbs the punishment the law demanded on behalf of his mom out of love. And the result is she doesn't experience any of the punishment. That's what Jesus did for you. He wrapped his arms around you so the punishment that sin deserved fell on his back and not your back. That's propitiation. Paul describes that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, who was, in other words, completely innocent, to be sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus, who was innocent, sin. In other words, God took all of your sins, past, present, and future, even sins you don't know you're going to commit. They've already been taken off of you and placed on the back of Jesus, and he took all of the punishment your evil deserved 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's why the cross matters. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. He took your punishment so you don't have to. 
Now, the result of propitiation, because Jesus absorbed the punishment you deserved, first result is redemption. That's our, that's our second big word. Jesus on the cross redeemed you. He set you free from sin's penalty. To redeem someone means to set them free from a desperate situation they couldn't deliver themselves from. Easiest picture I know of redemption that many of us have seen with our own eyes is if you get a pet from the pound. So Julie and I, we adopted a, a little cat from the pound. And, and the pound, it wasn't like the pound was a horrible place. It wasn't, but still it's a prison. She couldn't just leave the pound. And if no one adopted her, she would have eventually been put down. And so we stepped in, and out of love for this little kitten, we paid the price to set her free. That's how redemption works. Well, Paul wants you to understand, that's exactly what Jesus did for you. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So Jesus purchased your freedom from sin with his own blood. It was an incredibly expensive price he paid, his own life, to purchase you out of sin. That's redemption. So you've been freed from the penalty of sin by the death of Jesus. So that's what propitiation accomplishes. First, redemption. Second, so this is our final big word I'm going to give you, reconciliation. Jesus on the cross, he reconciled you. That means bringing us back into the family of God. Look again at Romans, turn to chapter 5. We'll spend a little time in chapter 5, too, this morning. So, chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we have been reconciled through the death of Jesus. Reconciliation makes, means you take uh, two parties who are at odds with one another, who are hostile, who are enemies, and you make them friends. You bring them into one family. Okay, I would say reconciliation is actually better than redemption. Okay, redemption just sets you free. Reconciliation makes you part of God's own family. Reconciliation is God bringing you in as a son or daughter forever. Paul talks about it in Galatians 3. He says, for you are all sons of God or children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so when Jesus hung for you and died on the cross, he wasn't just setting you free so you could go about your way. He was actually purchasing you so you could be part of God's own family forever. That's the beauty of reconciliation. You are now a child of God. But notice how that verse ends. Through faith in Jesus. You see, God doesn't force redemption or reconciliation on anyone. He makes it possible for everyone. It's, a, it's available for everyone, but you have to accept it. You have to say, yes, God, I want that. That's where faith comes in. Faith is you saying to God, yes. God, I do agree with you. I am a sinner and there's nothing I can do to fix my sin problem, but I believe you sent your own son, Jesus, to die in my place and rise from the dead so that I could have forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, eternal life as a free gift. I say yes to that. That's the point of the most famous verse in your Bible. This is where John 3.16 fits in. Not just a football game, but everywhere. John 3.16, most useful verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All that is required of you to have eternal life is you just must, in faith, say yes. I believe. 
So let me ask you, do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe you've done wrong things that that hurt yourself, that hurt other people, that break God's laws? Do you believe that that sin is a problem that you can't fix? No amount of good deeds you can do to wipe away that sin. Do you believe that to fix it for you, God sent his son Jesus, who lived a sinless life and then died in your place on the cross to take the punishment of justice that you deserved and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death forever? So that you could have forgiveness as a free gift. If there's anything keeping you from believing any point in what I just said, please come talk to me or anybody who who works here, anybody with a name tag this morning. We would love to walk you through the truths of the gospel and help you get to that place where you can say yes. Love to have you get to that place. And that's really what this season of the year is about. Us talking to one another about the truth of what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. So if anything's holding you back, please come talk to us. So fixing our sin problem is the most significant reason Jesus died on the cross. It's, it's the most significant answer to the question, why does Jesus' death matter? But it's not the only reason. There's a few other reasons why Jesus died, a few other reasons why his crucifixion matters. So let me walk you through those now. Um, reason number two, it reveals to us the extent of God's love. You, you probably know this. Ultimately, every single person on the planet, whether you're talking man, woman, old, young, rich, poor, whatever race they might be, every single person on the planet just wants to know they're loved. Everybody is desperate for love to know that they are truly unconditionally cared for by someone else. Everyone wants that. Ultimately, it's the cross that offers it to you. It is the cross that proves to you as an individual that you are truly unconditionally loved. Because on the cross, Jesus died for every person's sins individually. He died for you by name to prove to you the love that he has. So look at, again, book of Romans. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 8. Verse 8, famous verse. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated the extent of his infinite and unconditional love for you. How? By Jesus dying on the cross when you were still an enemy of God. You weren't a child of God yet. You were hostile to God and God sent his son. But let's be clear, it's not just proof of the Father's love. The cross is also proof of the Son's love. Because God the Father didn't make Jesus go to the cross. There was no coercion involved. It was Jesus' own free choice. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, Jesus was not a, a helpless victim on the cross. He chose it. He chose to suffer and die. Why? Out of love for you. And so when you wonder, am I truly loved? You look at the cross. That is your ultimate expression. You don't look at your wedding ring. As wonderful as marriage is, this is not proof you are loved. That is. Because this love will ultimately always fall short because we're human and we hurt each other. The cross is your only perfect proof of love. So if you want to know, am I love? Don't watch a Hollywood movie. Don't worry about a dating relationship. Look at the cross. That's it. That's the proof that the Almighty Creator loves you more than you can possibly imagine. 
He willingly gave his life for you by name. So why does the cross matter? Because it is God's proof that he loves us. It revealed the extent of God's love. Third reason why the death of Jesus on the cross matters. Because it reset human history. In Romans 5, while we're here, we're going to see that Paul is going to contrast Jesus and Adam. Jesus and Adam. So look with me at verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, that's, that's quite complex. Let me unpack that for you. When he says, through one transgression, that's talking about Adam in the garden. One act of sin. He took the forbidden fruit. The result is that sin and death entered the human race. When he says, one act of righteousness, that's Jesus on the cross, dying in your place. So Paul is contrasting what Adam did and what Jesus did. And and I think you know the basics of the story. So God, all the way at the beginning, created Adam and Eve. He placed them in a perfect garden. They were innocent. He gave them everything they needed to bless them and protect them and care for them, along with just one command, one simple command. Don't eat from the forbidden tree. All the others you get, just this one. Don't touch it. Don't, Don't eat from it. And yet they did. And, and when, they, when they ate from the forbidden tree, they plunged the human race into sin and death. And, and human history, in a sense, became a tragedy until God sent his son, Jesus. And when Jesus came, he hit the reset button on human history. He, he hit the reset button on the human race. Jesus became, Paul saying, our new Adam. The new head of the human race, leading us out of doom, out of death, and into life, into righteousness. And so, to to make this as simple to see as I can, I'm going to give you a chart. What does all of human history look like? The biggest history chart you can imagine. Big chart. All of human history. Well, there's, there's a lot of details on it, but when you get right down to it, it's really, really simple. That is human history. At least what matters out of human history. A lot of other interesting things happen, but this is what really matters. We have a beginning and we have an end. And right in the middle, we have one event that matters above all else. When God hit the reset button by sending his son Jesus to die for your sins and rise from the dead, that is what hit the reset button and moved the human race from doom. Because that's where we were headed. We were accumulating more sin, more wrath, more punishment until Jesus showed up and he died in our place for all human sin. And that reset the trajectory of human history so that now we're headed towards hope and towards eternal life. That's human history in a nutshell. Jesus died on the cross to reset human history so that it is not a tragedy, it is a triumph. Third reason why he died, third reason why it matters. Fourth reason why Jesus died on the cross, fourth reason why his death ultimately matters. On the cross, Jesus routed our enemy. Let me give you Colossians chapter 2. I'll just put it up on the screen for you. You don't have to turn there. Colossians 2 verse 15. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And when Paul talks about rulers and authorities in the book of Colossians, he's not talking about kings or politicians or presidents. He's talking about Satan and demonic forces that, that in a sense, rule this universe. Ultimately, God is sovereign, but right now they are in charge of this world system we live in. And what Paul is saying is that on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and and his kingdom once and for all. 
It was a great defeat for Satan. And Paul says, specifically, he does it by disarming them. Disarmed there in Greek, it pictures defeated soldiers dropping their weapons. They've been beaten, so they drop their weapons. They have no more weapons. So how did Jesus' death on the cross take away Satan's weapons? Well, in the book of Revelation, we are told that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. What Satan does, like his mission, he's got a nifty little trick. He tries to tempt human beings to sin. He makes sin look really appealing. And then as soon as you give in to sin, what does Satan do? He accuses you before God. He heaps guilt upon you. Look what he did. Look what she did. That's what Satan loves. He loves to crush you with guilt. But Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, what did Jesus take away? All of your guilt. Not just for past sins, but for future sins. There's no more guilt left. And so what's the result? For you, Satan has no weapon. There's no guilt he can put before God because you have no guilt. It's already been carried on the back of Jesus. And so Jesus has already disarmed Satan. Now, Satan is still here. He's still powerful. He's still to, to be respected and feared. And yet his defeat is certain. He has no weapon to use against you anymore. See, Jesus has, has beaten him. That's a great irony of the cross because we know from the story, it's actually, it's fascinating. Satan is the one behind the gospel accounts moving Jesus to the cross. Satan wanted him there. And, and Satan doesn't get to see the future. He's not like God. He lives in time just like you and I do. And so picture for a second, Satan is watching them pound nails through Jesus's hands. And how's he feeling at that moment? Pretty awesome party going on wherever Satan is. It's awesome day. Son of God is being crucified and he's put up on the cross and he's hung there and Satan is so excited until when? He dies. And Satan realizes, I just signed my death warrant. Because in dying, he just took away the one and only weapon I have, guilt. It's gone. It's it's been completely satisfied. There is no more guilt. And three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, which is like the ultimate insult to Satan. You get nothing. So at the cross... The victim became the victor. It's like this great ironic turn of events. The one who seems to have been defeated won the battle once and for all. So Satan is completely defeated. It's just not been actualized yet. He's still here. He still has power, but his days are numbered. He was defeated at the cross by Jesus. So when we think about the death of Jesus, when we think about crosses on our walls, around our neck, when we think about what we're celebrating during Holy Week, What we are saying to one another when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus is that this is the most significant event in all of human history. It is priceless to us because it is only through the cross that our sin problem could be fixed, that we could see the extent of God's unconditional infinite love for us, that we could reset human history from doom to triumph, and that our enemy, Satan, as powerful as he is, could finally be defeated. The cross is everything to us. Now, that's a lot of theology. I've walked you through a lot of stuff this morning. What do you actually do with it? Where do you go from here? Well, number one, I hope all this theology will lead you to worship. I hope that this theology will lead you to say thank you to God. And ultimately, that's what we do during Holy Week. So why is it that we gather together and celebrate Easter and Good Friday and all this kind of stuff? Well, it's to say thank you. It's not just to watch kids wave palm fronds, as wonderful as that is. It's to say thank you for what happened 2,000 years ago because it's everything to us. Without what happened this week, 2,000 years ago, we have no hope. So this week, I'm going to challenge you. It is Holy Week. It is the most sacred seven days of the entire year for Christians. I want to challenge you to set aside some time to spend on your knees giving thanks to God.
Whatever else you do this week, I hope you will do that. I'm not going to tell you how much time you figure it out, but spend some time on your knees saying thank you to Jesus. Because without him being willing to go to the cross and voluntarily die in your place, you would have nothing good. So spend some time saying thanks. I will remind you we have Good Friday service here at Southwood on Friday night. We would love to have you come. That will be an opportunity to say thank you to Jesus for dying for us. Then we have Easter Sunday. Next Sunday, come again. We'll say thank you for Jesus rising from the dead and defeating sin and death for us. So application number one, take time this week to give thanks. Application number two, share this good news. You guys know, no matter what happens with politics in this country, no matter what happens in upcoming elections, it's not going to change anything, right? It's not going to fix anything, right? Let's be honest with each other. It's just going to move around deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to fix anything. Why? Because this world is broken by sin. And no matter what, now that doesn't mean don't get involved in politics. You should, but not because you believe that's the great hope. You do it because you want to represent Jesus well to people so you get to tell them about him. That is ultimately what matters. That Jesus died for us on the cross. That's the only confident hope we can have in this life. And so during Holy Week, let me challenge you, please share that good news with someone. Take this stuff that that is heady, a lot of theology here, and find a way that you can share it with someone. It's incredibly good news that when they read the newspaper or the the internet and it freaks them out and it makes them afraid, you know what? There's hope. In the midst of all of this anger, in the midst of all of this sadness, there's incredible hope because the Son of God died for them. We want them to know that good news. It's the best news that's ever been shared. So again, Holy Week, this is your opportunity. You just need to to realize that in your mind. No one's going to think you're weird talking about Easter this week talking about the resurrection, talking about the death of Jesus. Use this week to your advantage. Tell someone in your friend circle or your family circle who doesn't yet believe, tell them why you do. Okay, so share with someone. Again, I would encourage you, bring them to Easter Sunday next week. It'll be full of the gospel. We'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus and why that matters. Love to have you bring friends and family who don't yet know Jesus next week. So let's be praying that God is going to give us opportunities along with courage and boldness to talk about this good news this week. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that your love for us is so infinite and unconditional that it moved you to send your son to die in our place, to fix our sin problem that we had no hope of fixing. And Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you freely chose that. You were not coerced onto the cross. You chose that before time began out of love for us. We praise you and thank you for that. We thank you that on the cross, Lord Jesus, you fixed our sin problem once and for all. You propitiated our sin. You appeased the justice of God so that we could have forgiveness. You made it possible for us to be redeemed from sin and reconciled into the family of God. We praise you for that, Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that not only did you do all of that on the cross, but you showed us the extent of God's love for us. You reset human history and you routed our enemy for us. We praise you that because of you on the cross, Lord Jesus, we have hope. 
And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we go from here this week, we, we look at a world that is grieving, that, that is afraid, that, that is riled up, that is angry. And, and we know that there are so many important issues being discussed out there. And yet we know at the end of the day, the only hope for these people is you, Jesus. And so we pray, help us as we, as we interact with this world, as we live among them, help us to boldly, courageously share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our family members who don't yet believe. Help us to share Jesus in a winsome way, full of grace and truth. Go before us, have Holy Spirit, and soften hearts and open eyes. We pray that you would work to draw tens of thousands of our fellow Americans into your family this holy week. We believe you can do that, Lord Jesus. Please work powerfully through us and among us. All for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name and for whose glory we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you for Good Friday and Easter Sunday.